0: This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as part of the 2022 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. First, let me just tell you what an enormous... uh, joy it is for us at Surfside to have you all here. Uh, It's something we look forward to a long time. We lost campus outreach for a period of time uh, here at the church. Our church has a long history of connection with with CO and um, used to have a a ministry here on the campus of Coast Carolina. Some things shook up and and they're not here any longer as a team although they are coming back Uh, and then during that time uh, the CO students coming, stopped coming because they were going to other places and so forth. That was before my time here. And when I arrived, um, I want you to know something interesting. When I came here, I met with our board of elders. And at my very first meeting, I said, here's something we need to start praying for right now. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to get CO back to come here in the summers. And we need to start praying for that. And... Um, A few months, I've only been at this church three years, and so a few months later, um, my phone rang, and it was Reed, and he said, hi, uh, my name is Reed, and I forget Reed's last name. I can't pronounce it anyway, but what is his last name? Right, and he said, "Um, my name is Reed, (laughs) and I said, hey, Reed. I'm with Campus Outreach, and we'd love to like come down and send all kinds of students to, to Surfside again like you know we used to do and so forth. And that set into motion a tremendous sense of joy on the part of our church, or part of our leadership, and so forth. You guys have no idea what you represent in the life of our church. And uh, I'm just profoundly grateful for each of you uh, coming. It's something we look forward to. Um, Some of you, I hope, will come back again. I'm sure there are some seniors and this will be the last for you. Maybe you'll come back to this area when you've got a family of your own for vacations and you'll think, hey, I used to go there when I was in college. Uh, Some of you younger folks, uh, younger students, Lord willing, you'll come back again uh, next year and the year after that and we'll look forward to that. So uh, just a little bit of a personal testimony of my own. Thank you for your ministry to us Um, just for coming and being present and a part of things. Okay, we're going to take something of a hard turn now uh, this evening because we are going to talk about heaven. And uh, it is uh, usually when I give lectures or speak of, (coughs) pardon me, of any kind, I like to bring with me resources. Here are some books and buy these books and ask for them for birthdays and Christmas and add these to your library and read this book and that book. Well, when you're going to talk about heaven, that's hard to do because there's like no books on heaven. Nobody writes much on heaven. Uh, What we do write is pretty limited and usually it's from our imagination. The reason for that is there's very little in the scripture about heaven. And that is intentional. That's on purpose. I believe this is a part of God's work in sanctifying our imaginations. He gives to us just a little bit in the scripture of the hope of heaven. And uh, this is where some people get a little squirrely, also. We start thinking about heaven in all kinds of weird ways. So we want to go back to the Bible and look at what the scripture has to say about heaven. And then more importantly, or more specifically for our context tonight, we want to talk about not just heaven as a place, but the hope of heaven. That's our task. We're going to talk about the the hope of heaven that we have. And I hope to encourage you, I want to encourage you. You're just starting out your race, so to speak. And it's a long race, and I want you to finish well as you grow older. And I myself, I'm 48 years old, I'm kind of midway through my race and I want myself to finish well, and I want you as you start off your races in the Lord to finish well. And one of the key things that we have that God has given to us in the scripture to help us run our way, our, our, run our race well <laughs> uh, and to finish well is the hope of heaven laid out for us. Now, I want to begin then by telling you something of a personal story Um. And uh, in terms of how it is that I myself came to a place where the hope of heaven meant everything to me, everything to me. Um, talk about heaven, You talk about the hope of heaven, we're going to talk about the reality of hard things in life. You will face hard things in life. Many of you have faced really hard things in life, I have no doubt, your parents got divorced when you were young. You lost a parent, a sibling. Many of you have gone through that already. You know some of that pain. Some of you don't, but you will. In one way or the other, you will. And the hope of heaven is a gift to us to help us on our journey. We are exiles in this land, right? We are sojourners in this land. Something we've been hearing a lot about. Sojourners and exiles in this land. We're going to look at 1 Peter in a moment. And we're also going to look at Revelation 21 in a moment. But I want to tell you a little bit about my own uh, realities and how um, the hope of heaven became very personal and became the air that I could breathe and the only air that I could breathe. Um, December the 31st, New Year's Eve, 2011, that's 10 years ago, a little over that, coming up on 10 years. No, coming up on 11 years. Some of you, uh, all of you, would have been, I guess, in elementary school about that time. Uh, My wife and I have a lot of kids. We've got seven children. Uh, Two are your age, college kids. The others are seniors in high school, and they kind of go down from there. Our youngest is 10, coming up on 11 years old. He's born on December 31st, 2011. Anna and I had gone, we'd had lots of babies before. This is something of a routine for us. We know how to have babies. We go to the hospital, she takes some drugs because she doesn't go into labor on her own. We know this after six babies, that's how it is. She needs to be induced. We have the baby, we go home, and we see you next time. Um, So that's what happened. Uh, we go to the hospital. It's December 30th, actually, and um, when you are checking into the hospital to have a baby, they always have you there early. It's like 5 o'clock in the morning. Get here at 5 o'clock tomorrow. and you go. 24 hours go by. She's been taking all the medicines that she needs to take and all the inducing things and so forth. No dice. Um, then finally, on uh, early morning, on the 31st, next day, about 24 hours after we got there, She, uh, everything that can conceivably go drastically wrong with having a baby, it just, it just doesn't happen. And it did. Everything that can go, I mean, the things that are like, oh yes, that can happen, but it's like 0.5% of the time it happens. All of those things happened when my wife was having this baby. And, um, She was rushed back into another part of the hospital because the baby was dying and uh, my wife was dying all at the same time. And so you can imagine the chaos. It's total chaos. And um, at 7.04 a.m., I knew it because I instinctively looked at my watch. It was 7.04 a.m., almost this exact hour. No, it's 8.04, isn't it? And um, they, uh, or the hospital sound system, rang out what is called a code blue. Anybody pre-med, students, thinking of nursing, medical, emergency, people. Uh, most hospitals, including our own, code blue means somebody has died. Somebody has, their heart has stopped beating. Somebody has stopped breathing. Uh, this is it for Somebody. So at 7.04 in the morning, um, after all this chaos had erupted uh, for the previous two hours, um, it rings out. Bing! Um, Code blue, labor delivery operating room. And I knew, because I had been in the operating room of labor delivery, and I knew because they had told me that my wife was the only person in there. Um, And so I knew that's my wife they're talking about. And uh, that was, that was a, a dangerous time, that was a scary time. And it shaped me, it shaped me in profound ways. I went numb at that moment. I actually went numb about, two, uh, about 30 minutes earlier when the nurse said, here, come with me, you can look. And I went into the operating room and as the doors opened, the doctor turned around and his eyes were this big. He was hoping I was another doctor to come help him. And there was a look on his face that said, I need help. And I locked eyes with him, he with me. He shook his head and he turned back to go to work. And I knew that's when I went numb. And 7.04 rang out, and I was totally numb. And so I'm pacing in my room, and I could see outside. You know how the doors close and there's a crack under there? You can see this, what's happening outside a little bit. I saw a 1,000 footsteps running up and down the hall. And um, somebody popped their head in my room, room 104 of our hospital. And they, uh, he said, Yes, the husband is still here. And I heard somebody down the hall say, Tell him to stay there. So he popped his head back in my room and he said, Don't leave this room and close the door. And um, I, was, I was undone. My wife is dying. And I've got seven kids at home, the oldest of whom is 10. And the youngest was just born an hour ago, two hours ago. And I, my wife is gone. That's what I thought. That's what I knew. I looked. I popped my head out the door, and I saw what was happening across the hall. There. Uh, this was significant. This was major. <clears throat> Doctors came. Nurses, two nurses came into my room. They're covered in surgical gown. All I could see was their eyes. A man and a woman came in, and uh, I remember the the. The woman nurse had these beautiful blue eyes, and she's looking at me, and they're, they're, they're just red, and she's crying. And I said, what is it? And the, male, uh, the man next to her said to me, you need to pray for your wife. And I said, I am. Now tell me what's going on. And they said, she's not going to make it. And this was a few moments after that code blue rang out. And I said, okay. And they closed the door and they disappeared. Back in the hall they go, in the room, a thousand more footsteps outside running around, bells ringing, people going. A little while later they came back in and they said, "Um, we think there's one more chance that we can do. She's still alive. But there's one thing that we think we can do um, that just might save her life. And I said, well, what is it? And they told me what it was, and they just looked at me. I think to this day, I don't know if they were asking my permission or if they were just telling me. But I said, well, then go. And they said, okay. Door closed, and off they ran. About that time, my father arrived, he and my stepmom, my mom died and my dad's remarried and they were here for Christmas and also to see the baby. And uh, we just stood there in my room together and watched all of this unfold. And as I said, I was numb. Uh, She survived that day. And then uh, they came and they got me and they said, as soon as we can stabilize her a little bit, we're going to move her to the ICU, which was directly above where I was standing. And they said, um, but right now, the movement of the wheels on, you know, hospital beds have those wheels, and pushing that bed over the cracks in the tile floor, that rattle, that's too much for her. That's how fragile. And so we need to wait for a while. So they waited for a while. Then they transferred her successfully to the ICU, and they put her in a coma, where she remained for the next 10 days. And then it got really bad. That that was that was bad, but it wasn't it wasn't really bad. It got worse from there. Um, so much so that uh, the the uh, physician, our hospital was connected to Stanford over in the Bay Area, and uh, there were some relationships with them, and and um, the uh, highly experienced doctor that was in charge of all of this was named Dr. Gassman. And Dr. Gassman came and he got me and he said, um, Mr. Peterson, I'm sorry to tell you that I do not believe your wife is gonna survive. And you need to call your family and you need to tell them to come if they would like to see her again. So I said, okay. And I began to call family both my family and my wife's family, some of whom live in Eastern Europe. And so uh, they all came, and I had that same conversation with several other doctors. At a certain point, she began to bleed internally. She lost four and a half times the entire volume of blood that her body holds. She lost all her volume of blood four and a half times over. Um, And people don't survive this. And so that's why they kept telling me she's not going to make it. And so once all my family came and everybody's here, both sides of our family, I <clears throat> still haven't seen the rest of my six children and I have no idea what's happening with the newborn downstairs in the, IC, in the wherever they take babies when they're born. Um, I had no, I haven't seen him. I just know it's a boy. Um, I know he's fine. His heart rate came back during the trauma, and he was fine. And um, they, uh, they said at a certain point, um, she's beginning to stabilize some. But the last time she had been awake, she had lost so much blood in her body that um, that causes very severe risk to brain function. And so they said, after four or five days of this, we, are, um, we think we can start waking her up now. And if she wakes up from this, she will likely not have full brain function. And I said, okay. And so they began to try to wake her up. She wouldn't wake up. So, how long will she remain in this comatose state? I have no idea. And I got seven children. And they're all this big and younger. Um, elders from my church came. It's the pastor at that time of a PCA church at this point in Fresno, California, where you will know. And um, I met with them in a little room off the side over there. And At that moment, this would have been January 4th or so of 2012. At that moment, when we sat down to pray, there were three or four of us in this little room. And I was undone, as you can imagine. Not only did I learn how to pray at that moment, that's when I learned the hope of heaven. That's when I learned it. Because if my wife doesn't wake up from this, or if she does wake up and her brain doesn't work anymore, my life is a thousand percent changed, and I don't know what I can do to keep going on. I don't know how I'm going to go on. I don't know how I pastor a church. I don't know how I raise children. You start thinking these things. Will I get married again? Will I see her again? If he passes away. Um, And I knew for absolute certain at that moment. That the scripture was true. That this life is but a mist. You all live in cold weather in the wintertime. You walk outside, you breathe out. What do you see? Your breath. It blows around. And in, in an instant it's gone. That's life. That's how long it lasts. The only reason that I can keep pressing forward and keep on in faithfulness to my Lord is if I believe that soon this life passes and awaiting me is a glorious inheritance. And there, my wife will be awaiting me. That's the hope of heaven. And I learned that in very real time. Some of you have met my wife. She survived. Nobody has any idea how in the world she survived and has full function, because it just doesn't happen. Uh, she awoke from this coma 10 days later, on Jan- January the 9th, which was one of our son's birthday. We have enough kids that almost every day is somebody's birthday. January 9th, one of our boys turned five. And um, that's when she woke up, and she came out of this coma. Um, and her beloved Alabama football team, where she went to college, University of Alabama, had beat LSU in the National Championship game that day. And she remembers that. And um, when she asked how the game was going, I knew that her brain had full function. (laughs) So that's a little heavy. But that's life. And that's the hope of heaven that you need to internalize, that I needed needed to internalize. Those things were theories for me until suddenly I was faced with the most pain that I could possibly endure. And that's what I learned. Now, Scripturally, we ask this question What does all this mean for living as sojourners and exiles in this life? What does the hope of heaven mean for us as Christians awaiting a glorious inheritance? Because in this life, We are exiles and sojourners. This is not our home. And if you turn towards treating this world as your home, I promise overwhelming affliction awaits you. Affliction awaits all of us. Sad reality of some kind. And some of you have endured it already. But if this is your home, this is all there is, this is it, What we're after is the hope of heaven. So that's what I want to talk about. Probably talk a little bit, even less than I have already on this. But what I want to do is walk through a passage of the scripture. I'll make a couple of references to some other things. And then I'll close with some quotes by some people that knew something of the hope of heaven. Our passage is Revelation 21 that paints this picture for us. At verse 1. This is the Apostle John context here. He's exiled. He's on this island near part of the Greek area, that part of the world, Greece and so forth, this island called Patmos. That's where he is. He has been exiled because of his faith. And while there, the Lord does something unique and allows this vision for him to see things. That's what he writes down. That's the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That, that matters. Verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. living as sojourners and exiles, awaiting our inheritance. I want to work backwards through that passage. If you have your Bibles there, backwards from verse, uh, he will wipe away every tear. Verse 4, we're going to work backwards from verse 4 on up to verse 1. The former things have passed away. This is all about the experiences in this life that are common to man. What are some of those experiences in this life that are common to man? Some of them are good. Relationships are good. Marriage is good. Having children is good. Having success in your chosen profession is good. Uh, Buying uh, the home you want to buy and building a life and cultivating your life and cultivating your marriage and your family, that's good. Jesus says even that is passing away. Why? Because something greater is yet to come. In other words, even the best of this life is passing away, and that is only true, and that can only be good for us if what the living God has secured for us surpasses what is best in this life. The former things have passed away the good things, but also the hard things, the bad things, the tough things in this life are also passing away. Um, The Scripture tells us something that is paradoxically impossible, which is, as the Apostle Paul would say to, say, the Romans, for instance, rejoice in your suffering. That is a paradox. That doesn't happen. You can't do that. Unless you go through this rejoicing with Christ and trust, as I said on Sunday, in the goodness of his sovereignty. When I was going through all this with my wife, I knew at a certain point in time I'm going to have to go home and I'm going to have to gather up all my children and I'm going to have to tell them two things. The Lord took your mom, and the Lord is good. How do you do that? How do you tell children, you are my kid's age, uh, 10 years ago, you're that age. How, how, how do you hear that from your mother or father or somebody else that you know and love? Uh, that was that was hard. It was challenging. But echoing somewhere in the back of my mind, I could hear the apostle Paul oh, rejoice. Rejoice in your affliction. Rejoice in your suffering. Because by it, God is purifying you. And yes, by this, God will purify your children. Do you believe me or do you not? That's what's tethered to my emotions through it all. Um, People started coming to the hospital room when my wife woke up and then she was in the hospital for quite a while afterwards. Um, and all these people that we didn't know, doctors and students, and all, just kept coming in and looking at her <laughs> and uh, saying, to "Her, you're the you're that person." It was it was quite a mirage. So there was a uh, doctor, the one I mentioned, who uh, I popped my head in during the emergency times on the thirty first. His eyes were this big. I met him later, a couple weeks later, at the hospital, and um, he told me the story from his perspective. And he's not a believer. He's uh, uh, from another part of the world, uh, Muslim by faith. And he said uh, to me, <clears throat> I put my whole body up over the top of your wife because there was nobody else in the room except the nurse that was working on tools and the other nurse that kept bringing blood. That was it. It was a shift change, and people had left early, so they were, they were down people. And then they were up people because the shift changed. Then there was double the people. It was a very interesting little time. Shift change was at 7 o'clock. This was 7.04. So he uh, was by himself for a few moments. And uh, not to give, be too graphic, but it was a, it was a, it, he points to the ceiling. And he said, it was a bloody scene. I'm sorry to tell you. There was, there was just blood everywhere. Total chaos. And he said, I wrapped my body over your wife. It's total chaos. He said, I've been doing this for 25 years. And he says, I I let go of your wife. And I put my hands up. And he said, I said out loud, oh, God, help me. And I went back to work. And he said, from that moment on, everything I was attempting to do began to work well. Every vein I needed to find, I could find a vein. Every tool I needed, they brought it to me just right, and so forth. And he says to us, This is where all gathered and everybody's bawling. He said, "Um, I don't know much, but I'll tell you this much. He says, As as a physician for 25 years, I'm telling you this your God saved her. Now, that was a powerful testimony because this was not a believer. Um, And he said, I don't know him. (laughs) It felt like the Apostle Paul, you know, in the first few chapters of Romans. the book of Acts. I don't know him. And of course my family are all many of whom are believers Virtually all of them are believers. We're all just jumping at the bit. We know him and this God whom you say is unknown, we shall make known to you. <laughs> and um, why do I say that? Well the unbelieving world that suffers cannot find the reason or the ability to rejoice in those sufferings. The the unbelieving world will find rationale. They will do their best to find rationale for affliction and suffering. But they can't because there's no hope of heaven. What is here is all there is. The believer suffers, and that suffering compels the believer to uh, to experience God in ways that people just don't experience God. Nobody wants affliction. Nobody wants suffering. But the man or the woman whose heart is tuned to the grace of God will find in that affliction the hope of heaven. These experiences, all of them, the former things passing away that's why peter says in first peter chapter one and also again at first peter chapter two especially at chapter two where is it verse 11 is it i may have written it down i'm not sure i think it's verse 11 he refers specifically peter does as sojourners and exiles therefore as sojourners in this land or he says a little bit um earlier um First Peter, I should have made a, I should have made a uh, quicker reference to it here. Or right, verse chapter one, blessed this is verse three. Uh, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is First Peter one verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There is only such thing as a living hope if the former things are passing away. You see the connection? You see the logic of the Scripture's thought here? There is only such thing as a living hope of things yet to come if it is also true that the former things are passing away. So, He has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ. To, so we are born again to an inheritance That is imperishable and undefilable and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's why he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from these things of the flesh, because there's something better. The hope of heaven. Implications of this, number one. There is a thing in the world of theology that is called the church militant. That means that the community of believers in this life still go through all the muck and mire of this world, of this life. The church militant. We we walk with humility, grace in the Lord. That's the church militant because We are not there yet. While the church is the church militant, while you are part of the church militant as a Christian, the first implication is be invigorated to give yourselves to the body of Christ as she awaits her future glory. Be invigorated by the hope of heaven to give yourselves to the community of the believers as she awaits her future glory because these things are passing away. So be with people who are passing away. That lesser things are passing away for greater things yet to come. A lot more we could say on that, but we'll move on making our way backwards from verse uh, 4 up. So we'll go to verse 3 then. I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is what John heard. He's watching the new Jerusalem come, thinking about the hope of heaven. I heard a loud voice. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself Will be with them as their God. There's a voice that summons our attention from heaven. God speaks from heaven and he summons our attention. And here is what he says I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. Keep this hope. Before you. Uh, this idea of God making his dwelling with man is a central motif the entire Bible. It is held out to us as a hope of future glory. Genesis chapters one and two tell the story of God's creation. What happens? God creates man. God walks with man in the cool in the evening in the garden. Uh, Psalm, 90, the Lord has become our dwelling place. That's Psalm 90, verse 1. John's gospel, chapter 1, same thing. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And verse 14, and he makes his dwelling with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's always been the case, and that always will be the case. Here at the very end of the Bible, John sees a new Jerusalem coming, what does God say? I'm reminding you again, my dwelling place is with man. That's the language of the covenant. Over and over again in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there are these covenants that unfold. God makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. And he makes a covenant with Moses and all the people of Israel. He makes a covenant with David, he makes a promise of a new covenant, and with every one of those covenants, they all have something in common, which is they are all attended by the words, I will be their God, they will be my people. And here it is at the end of the Bible. Dwelling place of God is with man. I heard booming from heaven the covenant-keeping voice of God. That means that God delights in his covenant. God delights in his promise. He delights in his own promise to you. He delights in his own faithfulness to his promise. God delights in that. God delights in his own word to you. He takes pleasure in his own word to you. He delights in you yourself, in his people. One of the last books of the Old Testament is the book of Zephaniah. And in chapter 3 at verse 16, I don't have it exactly memorized, but if I may summarize, he will sing over you. That God sings over you. He delights over you. Why? Because he is delighting in his own covenant, in his own faithfulness. two implications here. Hope of heaven. We may have hope of heaven because we participate by grace through faith in the very faithfulness of God and his delight in his word. Does that sound ethereal? You know what that means? Does that sound like it's out there? It's not. It's, it's very much in here. God delights in his own faithfulness, and we participate in God's faithfulness. We participate in that. We get that. We get to, to, to chew on that and internalize that and lay hold of that. To digest that, spiritually speaking. We get to do that. And that, in turn, helps us be upward focused. If I am delighting in God who delights in me and who delights in himself, then my mind and my eyes go upward, Godward. That's what that means. That's one implication. The second is our lives uh, want to be oriented toward God's faithfulness. Orient your lives towards God's faithfulness. As I sat there and I watched my wife fading for a long time. And I remember when they took her away to go do this emergency surgery because she was bleeding again. She was she was everything was falling apart again midway through this time in the coma. They rushed her out once again, out of the ICU. Um uh, I, I collapsed on the wall. I'm not ashamed to tell you. But I put my back on the wall and I was crumpled down. And then I gathered myself up and I waited in the emergency room. And um there was a time that came that another code blue rang out. And this time it said that my wife was now in room 204. And the code blue rang out, and it said, this was, this was um, uh, I forget the day of the week, but the hospital was very quiet at this point. And they said, um, code blue, intensive care unit, room 206. And I, I took off like a bullet. I mean, I ran very fast. <laughs> I ran, the hospital was kind of rounded. It was shaped like a circle. And I took off around that corner thinking, did they say 206? My wife is in 204. Or was it 106 downstairs in 204? Or was it 104, or 206? I, I don't know, but I'm going. And I ran. And as I ran, this magical door opens up and out comes the surgeon and she's out in front of me and she's at full tilt and she looks back at me like this and and we're both running as fast as we can and she got there first (laughs) there's a lot to say about that but uh (laughs) she got there first and uh she swipes her car runs back in and she comes running back out sweaty she's doing this and she says it's not us it's not us it's 206 or 204. And you can imagine my sense. I collect, There was an internal uh, a pot, a plant, a tree with a, its own little potting thing here. And I, I sat down on that to try to recover. And the rest of my family caught up. And we all sat there to try to recover once again. And we just thought, what's going to happen here? And once again, I was compelled to wonder out loud does God really delight in me? Does God really delight in himself if he will let me go through all of this and if he will let these children go through this? Does God delight? Well then I read Revelation. And there's a loud voice coming down out of heaven. And the voice says, I am your God and you are my son. Or daughter. That is hope of heaven. Third, verse 2. And then we'll conclude because you're probably starting to wonder what time Chick-fil-A closes. Verse 2 says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God is preparing, that's a key word, a place for us to live together with him. Which means what awaits the believer. And we could extend that out and say what awaits the church, but let's, let's personalize that. What awaits the believer? The society of the redeemed is the church. The individual person, individually redeemed person, man or woman, what awaits them is glory. I came across this quote from a Puritan called Thomas Watson. Read, read the Puritans. Despite what you may hear, they're not hard to read. Some of them are hard to read, but not all. Thomas Watson is one of them. In this blessed inheritance, there is nothing but glory. There's the king of glory. There are the vessels of glory. There are the thrones of glory. There is the weight of glory. There are the crowns of glory. There is the kingdom of glory. There is the brightness of glory. This is a purchase worth getting, the glory of this inheritance. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city of God, it's glorious in its character and in its nature. The Bible uses this idea of the church as the bride, Christ as the bridegroom on purpose, because there's nothing on this earth more beautiful than a bride. And that's why it's, it's presented there for us as that. And we are the bride. We are meant to be, see, we are seen by Christ as his bride, prepared and beautified. Because of his washing and cleansing blood. And John sees the new heavens and the new earth coming. He says, that's what God says. I've prepared her for this. The citizens of God. The place we're going. Though we're not yet there. We are already citizens. Of that place. Are already considered glorious. Think on that. All your filth. Oh, all that sin you keep running back to over and over, you know it's wrong. And all those insecurities that that you know are wrong, God deals with those things on the cross, washes them away by the cleansing blood of his own sacrifice so that he looks at you and what he sees is a little piece of the glorious bride of Christ which is all believers together. That's what awaits us. We are already considered glorious. It's a glory that will not fade, but it will be replaced with a truer and final glory that is bestowed on her. Implication of this, the future of the bride, if my future is greater glory then what I must be on earth is a person who not only honors that hope, but also honors the other people near me who have the same hope. Does that make sense? I need to honor my hope with my life. I also need to understand I'm one piece of a much broader movement of the gospel. And so I honor the people in my life who have the same hope that I have. Advancing the health of the bride of Christ, advancing the holiness of the bride of Christ, advancing the mission of the bride of Christ, because God the Father sees the bride of Christ as a whole through his son as glorious. All right, then verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's interesting to note here that um, in the Old Testament, for the Old Testament Jew, the sea is a place of chaos. It's a place of, of fearfulness. These were fishermen. They get on the sea, and the Sea of Galilee was notorious for looking beautiful at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and having a tempest unmeasurable at 2.30 in the afternoon. These winds come off these these mountain slopes out of nowhere, these little valleys, and all the wind comes through those valleys and whips up onto the Sea of Galilee, And, and the sea is a place of chaos. It's a fearful place in the Bible. I saw the new heaven and the new earth And the sea was no more. What's that mean? It means where you and I are going, if you are a Christian, is a place of peace. A place of total peace. And the things of chaos in this life are no more. I don't know about you, but that means everything for me when I think about the hope of heaven, a place greater than all things on this earth. It's all passing away. And the sea is no more. Chaos is no more. Wipe away tears. God is saying, come and and be welcomed into that place and be welcomed into that hope. And orient your life now around that hope. Behold, I am making all things new. That's verse 5. Write these down, John, because these words are trustworthy and true. That I am making all things new. I am authoritative to say this because I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So write this down. Thirsty, I'll give you water to drink from the spring without payment. You have a heritage. I'll be your God, you'll be my son. And I'm making all things new. That's the hope of heaven. I tasted the need for this hope in the early months of 2012 because I would have been undone. And in some ways, I was undone. My faith grew tremendously during that time. I learned how to pray during that time. I think I learned how to preach coming out of that time. I'd been a pastor for a good number of years, almost 10 years, I guess, by then. And... Um, I didn't really know the hope of heaven until I stood on that cliff's edge. And I had nothing. And I wonder if some of you were there. Some of you deal with a certain kind of anxiety and depression and, and self harm. And you wonder what, what's worth it. I know that. Here's what's worth it a promise. Same God who says, I will be your God. You will be my people. That same God makes a promise to you that says, I'm making all things new. All things new. And what I, what I hold out for you is a place where the sea is no more. A place where there's no more chaos. No more death. But peace only. So orient your life around that now. Do that now that's when you will learn joy. That's when you learn joy and peace in this life. Because the hope of heaven is there for us. Let me pray. Our Father, uh, you are good and kind to us. We have fun in this life. We are meant to enjoy this life, to have fun in this life. But we also remember that at stake in this life are much greater things what you've provided for us is all sufficient for the life of joy and peace in Christ. Though we taste it already, we are not yet home. Would you orient us each increasing ways towards our heavenly hope? Come, Lord Jesus. Bless us greatly. We ask it all for Jesus' sake and for our good. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2022 Summer Training Project hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but please don't charge edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.